preserving the history of Strategic Air Command, the Cold War, and aerospace artifacts. Welcome to the Strategic Air Command and Aerospace Museum Welcome podcast. To the Strategic Air Command and Aerospace Museum. Good to be back with you. Uh, if you have not already subscribed to our podcast, we would certainly encourage you to do so. Brian, we're about a year in now. We've uh, we've been had the opportunity to visit with a lot of different folks and um having has it been that long it, it has it's been Man, it it's been by. it has been over a year um the the stories that we've been able to uh to share um pretty timeless and if you do get a chance and you visit our website sacmuseum.org you can go to our podcast section and check out any of the uh, many episodes that we have had the uh, opportunity and the privilege to record here also want to encourage you while you uh, do go and check out our website to also uh, find us on social media twitter instagram facebook we also have a youtube channel you can search for sac museum that's s a c sac museum to uh, find out uh, more about what we have going on here at the museum and uh, also a lot of the history that makes up the stories, the people, the places, um, the events that are all a part of the Strategic Air Command and Aerospace Museum. And the last bit of housekeeping before we jump into today's episode would be our museum app, which is something we introduced here just about a year ago now as well. Uh, that is free. And the best part about our app is that it's a great companion if you are here in the museum visiting, but also it's a great way to kind of take a little bit deeper dive um, with some of the maps, the aircraft uh, history that we have. You can go to your favorite mobile marketplace and download our app. Again, search SAC Museum uh, for our mobile app, a free mobile app. Today, we are going to be talking about a uh, a time and it, two two different times, really, in history um, but the first taking us back to the Vietnam War, Brian, and um, the linebacker and linebacker two bombing campaigns. We're going to be visit, uh, introducing our guests here in just a moment, but kind of to sort of set the table, as it were, for uh, today's episode. I think it's really important for context to understand it, in it Vietnam, is, it linebacker is. and linebacker two. It is, John. It is. It is. It's, I mean, Vietnam was a, a very expansive uh, operation and there were a lot of bombing missions within their bombing bombing operations. Uh, when we refer to linebacker, that's uh, that was the first, I guess, linebacker operation. It was actually the first concentrated bombing missions in North Vietnam since Operation Rolling Thunder, uh, which happened in '68. Uh, linebacker happened uh, from May to October in '72. And it was a, a it was a large operation. It has strategic bombers and tactical fighters and bombers. Uh, there were uh, uh, about seven or 134 aircraft loss during this. So obviously, it was very costly uh, to the U.S. After this, though, so in October when this ends, October 23rd, uh, a couple months later, they decide to come back and launch another operation. They see that it, it it was beneficial in hitting targets, but it was costly. So they try to come back with a different plan. One of the things they did is for linebacker two is they talked with strategic air command. They had strategic air command um, actually plan the early missions. And they did that out of off at air force base here in Nebraska. So that was at the center of all of this. Um, they focused with uh, 200 and some 207 B-52s for these missions. Now, with those B-52s, you had to have KC-135s, KC 
to refuel those because they're flying out of Guam and out of Thailand to complete these missions over uh, North Vietnam. They flew over 700 uh, sorties. That's every time a B-52 goes on to a mission. That's a sortie. So they flew over 700 of those. Plus, they were completing another 200 plus sorties over South Vietnam to help support the ground operations there. Now, and this was all linebacker two. This was all from December 18th to the 29th. So, in a much much shorter time frame. And I think that's what they figured out is if they launch all of these sorties in a much shorter time frame, your adversary does not have time to regroup and to put up the defenses. Uh, there were over 200. Uh, uh, surface-to-air missiles launched by North Vietnam against the B-52s. And that's pretty much why we lost 16 B-52s that. Obviously, a whole lot less than was lost in linebacker. Um, but we also, one of the B-52s got a little bit of uh, kickback to that, though, in the sense that uh, two of the B-52s shot down MiG-21s. So if you think about the, if you know what a B-52 looks like, if you don't, go to our website and look up our B-52. It's a really big aircraft that just kind of lumbers through the air, and it shot down two fighters by themselves. Um, now, the cost also has to be with how many people were lost. There were 33 crew members lost. There was another 33 that were injured, and then there were 26 that were captured. And so, but it was beneficial, the importance of linebacker to, was that it brought the North Vietnamese back to the negotiating tables to help end the war. So that was the importance of linebacker too. So was it always viewed, line, the, the linebacker bombing campaigns, was it always viewed in, in terms of a two-phase mission? Or was it more of the phase, the linebacker sort of setting the table that, okay, this will work, refine refine the mission, refine the scope, so to speak, and then linebacker two is launched. Yeah, now it, it, was, yeah it, was, it was more of they came up with the concept to do this focused, concentrated bombing mission. Rolling Thunder had done well in slowing down the advancement of the North Vietnamese into South Vietnam, but then they stopped it. One is it becomes very costly, not just in aircraft and people, but also in fuel and bombs and everything. You can't, they couldn't quite sustain it. Uh, in North Vietnam, they had a lot of uh, tunnels, sewers, everything. It's people had uh, basically bunkers to go to. And so that was kind of the challenge. So Rolling Thunder ended they came up with a new concept, get the B-50s twos up there, do some heavy bombardment and see what damage they can do. And again, that was a much more extended period of time. Uh, the sorties were more spread out. So it's, if you think of warfare, I guess think of it as for people in Nebraska, we can all think about it for tornadoes. If you have a tornado comes through, you can seek shelter, you can hunker down, the tornado goes through, you can now go back out, regroup, rebuild, do what you need to do before the next one comes. Imagine though, like linebacker two, they're just constantly coming. So now you're stuck underground. Now you're stuck in a place that you can't rebuild. You can't defend yourself. You just got to let them come and do all this destruction and then try to regroup. When your population comes back out and sees the devastation, they're more apt to say, you know what? I think we've had enough. Well, and that really sets the table for our discussion here today, and that is 2090 Years of Second Chance at Life, the documentary by director and executive producer, Steve Saunders. Um, Steve, first, thank you so much for joining us here today. Before we uh, visit with our other special guest, um, for, for you, 
you, you heard Brian just going through and, and describing um, linebacker and linebacker two uh, very well, I might add, for just well, for just being a couple of minutes, <laughs> considering the importance of of that in, in our, our military history. But, Steve, with your military background and then, you know, your expanding into this world of multimedia and what you've done with this documentary, a lot of questions. But I guess I'll start with. How did you come across this story and what was it about the story that you that, that appealed to you that I, I need to I need to document this? Hey, well, first of all, thanks for the opportunity and, and for the museum and, and, and you two uh, continuing interest in the in the documentary. Um, how I got into it was actually through uh, friends of ours who uh, I work with on my last military assignment, and they introduced uh, my lovely bride and I to um, Pat Lipinski Emil and uh, and her husband, Ed, down in Florida when we were wintering down there. And so, uh, Pat, I don't know if you remember this, but it, distinctly, I remember one night we're talking and you were telling the story about our other executive producer, Lewis Othman. And uh, Lewis had the idea that we should make this her her husband her um, um, husband Bob former husband Bob um, a documentary or a, a movie Lewis was really trying to get it into the Hollywood version I said well what's the story and so Pat started to tell me about Bob's life as a uh, you know as a from their early days to when he became a co-pilot on a B fifty two. Um, and his experience with linebacker two being shot down, saved from the aircraft by another B-52 pilot who uh, ran over a mile to try to get to him. And uh, as she continued to tell the story, um, I was kind of sucked into the irony of it. Um, and it dawned on me that, like myself, none of us are getting any younger. And so I just said to her, geez, Pat, you know, nobody's getting any younger. I've got a little background in video production. Why don't I see if I can get some interviews on uh, in digits in this case, not on tape or film and uh, and see what happens. And so that's what happened. We she gave me some names, uh, helped me make some contacts and the rest is kind of history. And so the, the the documentary 29 Years of Second Chance of Life, this is about Robert Hemel, who is a B-52 pilot. This is his story. And um, I want to take this opportunity to to bring in our other guest, Steve, you had already uh, had mentioned Pat Hemel. Thank you so much for joining us from I'm guessing sunny Florida today. No, I'm back in Virginia now. Oh, you're back in Virginia. Okay, <laughs> yeah. so you're 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 on tour right now. Well, we appreciate you being a part of, of this, and and I, I suppose before we kind of jump into the the meat and potatoes, so to speak, of the documentary, how did you meet Robert? Oh, I met him. Um, I had come home from college on a weekend, and it brought some girls home, and um, this friend of ours took us to the officers' club, and I met him at the officers' club. <laughs> I was with another guy and I kept asking him about Bob because Bob was by himself and I kept pestering this guy about Bob. And he finally said, okay, that's it. Robert, come here. And after that. <laughs> well, I got to say this guy you were with, at least he was pretty cool about it. And he kind of put two and two together that, uh, okay, maybe I'm not the guy. <laughs> I wasn't interested. Yeah. <laughs> so, you know, it, it's interesting. Um, you know, 
for, for my for myself, my uh, my father was in Vietnam, albeit not in the same um, didn't necessarily serve the same role as Robert did. But during that time, you know, I, I feel that, you know, with with National uh, Military Spouse uh, Recognition Day is coming up, I believe, May 6th. I mean, it's very, very soon. Um, for you, that time when you think back and he was a part of the Vietnam conflict, being at home, I think that those are the stories that maybe aren't shared as much. What was the one thing that was the biggest challenge for you during that time? Clearly the separation, but what was the thing that was kind of a daily, that daily battle? Well, I can tell you that initially the the most difficult thing was that they deployed them basically overnight and we were not aware of where they were. Uh, For two weeks, we were not told where they were. It was a secret mission. And um, the hardest thing was just getting used to being by yourself. You know, I was living in Massachusetts. I didn't have any family around me. So it it was just um, a matter of, you know, becoming more independent on my own and just learning to survive, you know, the loneliness. Yeah. And, and I, for folks today, I'll just compare that uh, as she's talking about people deploying on a moment's notice, that was kind of the rule of things at the time. Uh, today, they, they give people 30 days notice, three months notice, plus uh, they give you a region you're going to go to. And then you have email. Uh, you had they came up with Skype and then pretty soon you've got people FaceTiming while they're deployed. Uh, where you all didn't have that. No, we didn't. No. I mean, as a matter of fact, um, we had heard a couple of weeks before there had been a rumor that they were going to be deployed, but we didn't know exactly when or what. And so when it was time, it was time to go the next morning, you're off, off and goodbye. And they were gone for five and a half months, 28 days home, five and a half months, 28 days home, you know. So, so what was the communication like between you and Robert? How often were you, were you in touch and did you have a sense of, of, of what he was doing or, or, you know, was he just constantly wondering, is he in danger? I mean, how do you deal with that? What you do is you wait for the blue car every night to come to your house because you start realizing, you know, others are, are being impacted as well. So I remember I was, um, I had just found out I was pregnant before he left. And so I couldn't sleep in my bed anymore. I go sleep on the sofa because every time I'd hear a noise, I'd go to the window to see if it was a blue car. Now, were Um, you guys living on base at the time? No, we were living off base. Yeah. And and for the uninitiated, that's, that's code for me. Um, What, what, what is the blue car for the, for those that wouldn't know? The blue car, the blue car brings a um, a clergy, uh, usually some military official, and they usually come to let you know that either uh, your husband's been shot down or he's, he's missing in action or he's severely hurt or one or the other. Yeah. So good news. No, no, no. Uh, Steve. Back to you now. So you you visited with Pat. You you decided that you're going to tell this story, and I think that's the piece that. Um, and we'll get to this a little bit later on. But you know, folks will have an opportunity again 
to uh, come watch the 29 years documentary here at the museum. And we'll talk about that a little bit later and it'll be available on our website. But this actual story, there have been so many movies and so many documentaries and books and things written about Vietnam, but the, the fascination for you and the, the motivation for you to tell this particular story, if you could share. Well, sure. Um, I, I think you mentioned earlier, I've, I've got a military background myself. So being a retired army guy, um, hearing about a retired air force guy who had gone through this. And I think, you know, I'm going to give away the, the end, the end of this thing, but um, the, besides the fact that we know and, and like Pat and Ed a lot. Um, and the, besides the fact that folks weren't getting any younger, uh, there's a there's this tagline that I use where history meets destiny. And that's really the irony of the story is Bob being saved from the burning wreckage of his crashed B-52 by Brent Diefenbach um, and then recovering after 18 months or so, two years of of grueling recovery from his injuries, staying in the Air Force retiring as a lieutenant colonel and then going back to work for the Defense Intelligence Agency and being in the Pentagon on 9-11 and being killed by a airplane crashing into the building. It was, it was just kind of a compelling, ironic um, life story. And more than that, I think it's about the Emil family and Pat and her daughter, Natalie, coping with all of that. Um, you know, Pat, I'm going to I'm going I'm to turn it back to you here in a minute. But but that whole 29 years is really about that family and the story, the multiple stories that go with it, because there are several heroes in this thing with Brent Diefenbach and Alex Silverstein, the FBI agent who uh, recovered Bob's remains um, to Carl Glassbrenner, who helped Pat through all of those arrangements, um, essentially the casualty assistance officer, which is that team that Pat described from a military perspective, Carl served that role for her uh, after Bob was killed in the Pentagon. So, I mean, they're just it, listening to the folks talk about life as it evolved um, and eventually um, Bob and his in the funeral at Arlington and the B-52 flyover and all the things that happened there, remembering that that was right after 9-11. Um, and so big airplanes flying over the Capitol, over Washington, D.C. Um, in October after a September um, terrorist attack was unnerving for some of the citizens. So there's a lot of publicity about this, too. But it's just a compelling story. I mean, the irony of it. Um, Bob's life and how he lived it and the family and all of the people involved just were compelling to me. So uh, Steve Saunders, director, executive producer of 29 years, a second chance of life. You kind of alluded to it, you know, the documentary, we will be showing it again here at the museum on Memorial day. And there are a lot of stories and there are, are a lot of individuals that are important to be met, but the, the, this a, a big part of what we do here at the museum and uh, really the the thrust of the work that that Brian and our curatorial team has done is to take 
these to, to take our collection and to pull the stories, the human stories um, from the collection. So it's not just looking at a lot of artifacts. It's it's learning and understanding the people behind it. And I think that's part of the reason why this documentary is so fascinating to me. But the question that I have for you, Pat, is that it's hard enough already to be a wife and a mother to then have your husband gone in this conflict for you. Was there ever a time when you thought to yourself, I don't really, yes, this is a, an important story and it's, it's my, you know, my husband, but I don't really know if I want to relive all this again, because it was, that was a hard time for you. How did you, how, how, what was it that drove you that said, no, this has to be done. Steve's right. And we're going to work together to put, cause you're an executive producer on this documentary too. Well, one of the things was um, the fact that uh, we had two granddaughters. One of them had never met him, didn't know anything about him. And um, as a matter of fact, if you have time, I'll tell you the story. We have um, I had, okay. I had remarried and um, she was like, probably four or five years old, probably four. And we were in Nags Head. Our daughter was up in um, in the D.C. area. She was taking flowers to Bob. And so she called because she couldn't access the cemetery. And so we told her what other shortcut to take. In the meantime, she goes to the cemetery and takes Kayla, our youngest, there. And um, later she calls to thank us for, you know, the directions. And Kayla gets on the phone and immediately she says, Grandma, what happened to my papa? And the papa she was referring to is my current husband because she had no knowledge. And even if she would hear about Bob, there was no relevancy whatsoever. And I wanted something concrete for them to be able to understand a little bit more. They're 2023 20, now. And I think it's, you know, they can assimilate it easier. Yeah. Um, but it's, it wasn't easy. Um, I had to, uh, I could not have done it right away. If I because it took me it's been 20 years now and, and I can honestly tell you that for um, up until probably last year and even now when I think of certain things, um, I get teary eyed and, uh, you know, emotional. And so bringing up all of these things was not easy. You know, and having to dig through a lot of my stuff that I had to what it actually did was it reawakened some of the stuff that I had kind of put away, stifled so that I wouldn't have to deal with it. It was called survival. As if, you know, you have to survive. And the way to survive is to be strong and just move forward. And I was a school principal, so I had no choice but to keep moving forward, you know, because other people are dependent on me. But, uh, yeah, it was not easy. And um, now it is it's a lot easier. I don't catch myself crying, you know, or just getting teary eyed as easily as I did back then. Well, I, I mean, I think it's great. And I applaud you for getting this out, especially for family so that they can know this, uh, the, the grandkids that have no firsthand knowledge and, you know, can now have something tangible that they can remember him by. Exactly. Uh, it's, it's, I mean, it's what we strive for here at the museum is so that we have generations that are far removed. I mean, we talk about the Vietnam War and you, we've got generations that have, it's, it's history books. And so it's one thing to show them an aircraft. It's one thing to show them photos, 
but it's the personal stories. Let We have to let people know that it was people that uh, were able to defend the country. Right. I think one of the things, too, I mean, there were a couple of driving forces on this. And the other one was that Bob's story deems to be told because it's so ironical that he was killed. He actually was killed a second time the way he was supposed to the first time. Uh, it was his destiny. That's it was meant to be. Twenty nine years later, he died with fire, enemy and airplane. You know, so um, I was never angry with God, even after when 9-11 first initially um, happened, I um, my daughter was very upset. You know, she was five months pregnant, so she was very emotional. And I just told her, I said, I am not angry with God. He gave it back to us for 29 more years when she was little. And so she was fortunate she could have her father yeah. during those years. Well, and you, you sort of touched on this a little bit, Pat, but I wanted to ask with, with the initial motivation to be able to provide something for your family and for those members of the family that, that wouldn't, or that wouldn't not ever know Robert for you, when you think beyond just your family, now, what is the message that you hope they take away from Robert's life? And as important, I would say how you persevered and your children persevered and the rest of your family. Well, uh, we, we persevered, I think, because religion is very important to us, at least to me it is. And um, I just felt like God has always been there for me and, and you know, gave me the emotional support. I mean, I just felt all the time that he had been there to support me. Um, you, you have no option to persevere. It's either you opt to continue moving forward are you opt to go the opposite way? I know of people whose husbands died or killed in 9-11 who have not moved forward. They still they still print all the pictures of their wedding. They still print pictures of when they first met. All those things are important, but they can't move forward. You know, they're they're just stuck in that. And, and I don't think they're happy. You know, um, Bob would not want me to be unhappy. He'd want me to keep moving forward to make him proud. Steve, as you're trying to tell this story, it is a filmmaker, um, as you put it, you're an ex-military guy, you're an army guy. Um, you know, you have a, you have an objective in telling the story. Um, but you're also having to balance that with the emotion of dealing with, um, a widow dealing with a, you know, children who won't see dad again. Um, what were the challenges for you in making this documentary? Well, uh, first of all, dispersion of people. <laughs> I mean, yeah, yeah. Uh, getting and then uh, I think probably more than that, once you once you run the folks down and, and figure out where they are and when you might be able to get to them, it's a little bit of, you know, what Pat talked about, a, a, a bit of reluctance to talk about it because, uh, I remember Jim Kerber, who was the um, Pentagon force protection guy, who was basically the incident commander uh, on 9-11 and for the weeks afterwards. And he told me as we're as he's helping me haul equipment back out to the car after his interview, he said, you know, I was talking to my therapist about whether I should even do this interview. And she told she told me, yeah, go ahead. But if at any time it becomes uncomfortable, and that's when it first dawned on me. Jim was still going through um, PTSD therapy for 9-11 20 years later. Yes. Um, 
you know, when you when you talk to Brent Diefenbach and and Patty, I think you told me that Brent's family really hadn't heard him tell the story. Yep, yep. Because he's such a I use the term humble heroes, and Brent certainly fits that because he doesn't classify himself as a hero, and yet he saved Bob from the wreckage. I imagine the wreckage of a huge airplane on fire. Don't know what kind of bombs are maybe left on board because it just came back from combat mission. Um, um, f- four crew members are killed and the, and the tail gunner uh, got out miraculously somehow. We, we still don't know how that happened. But think about these folks and what they lived through. And I guess the challenge to answer your question is, you know, how do you respectfully ask questions that will help tell the story and allow them to deal with their emotions. Cause as if you, if people see the documentary, you'll see several places where emotions come out as, as well, they should. Um, and, and how do you capture that respectfully? That's, that's a critical issue for me. Do you think because of your background, Steve, that th- these folks were more open than they might be otherwise? Or do you think that it, I guess because it, you you talk about PTSD, you talk about people not being willing or sometimes struggling to to share their emotions. But when you watch the documentary, that's something that you see is is not the case. This is people are it's pretty raw in points. Well, yeah, I I think um, I I think people tended to be okay with me because I didn't just call them up and say, I'm going to be there tomorrow. We always have a pre-interview. I, I had questions already aligned uh, that we walk over. We don't, I didn't expect to interview interview, but I walked through the questions with them a couple of weeks in advance of even sitting down with a camera Uh, for all, but one or all, but one of the interviews, it was me. So I didn't have a huge crew. It was me setting camera. And so I'm having a conversation with the interview subject while I'm setting up. Um, And I think that actually, from a production standpoint, obviously, is a challenge. But from an interviewee, especially in this kind of a program, it was a benefit because I had that opportunity. They saw me as another human being who was just trying to get a story and it was a conversation. It wasn't really an interview at that point. And I think, I think all of that came to play to help out. Right. Um, I want to add, can I interject something? Go right ahead. Of course. Okay. Uh, I think first of all, that Steve is very approachable, mm-hmm. you know, and he's very calming. So that really attributes a lot to it as well. And I think also Steve, if you remember before I even gave you Carl's name and Brant's name, I, I literally picked up the phone and called them and asked them if they would be willing to be interviewed. I didn't want to intrude in them on them if at all possible, because I knew that if that had happened to me, I'd be kind of skeptical too. And they didn't know Steve from thy kingdom come, thy will be done. So this way, you know, he, he could call them. And, and, and like I said, Steve is just very approachable and very calm. And that helped. I think that's important too, Pat, because uh, I'm quite certain that Brent and uh, and Carl wouldn't have sat down with me had it not been for you making that introduction. And, yeah. uh, you know, that's important is that personal touch. 
uh, about how things go together. And Steve, the question I was going to ask you is, I mean, obviously you interviewed uh, several people for this. Is there one in particular that you had difficulty getting through? Uh, I just I just know in watching the documentary and talking with you that I can only imagine some of those interviews, it just it it just hit you. It hit you at, right at home. And did did you ever experience that? Is there one that stands out that it was kind of difficult for you to sit and listen through that? Yeah, besides Pat's, obviously, the, right. the mm-hmm. two that the two that struck me the most from I guess I think you're asking from the emotional side were yeah. uh, were Carl Glassbrenner and uh, and Jim Kerber. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, me too. Because, you know, they were first of all, Carl was not only helping Pat through all of that. He was a defense intelligence, a senior defense intelligence agency uh, executive. And he was at his wife was in the Pentagon. And the way he got to the Pentagon on 9-11 was from Bowling Air Force Base, where a bunch of folks were uh, in in a training class. Mm -hmm. And he physically drove himself to the Pentagon, used his credentials to get in there, eventually heard from his wife and uh, then was assigned to uh, as a team lead to secure all of the classified documents in the damaged area of the Pentagon. So not only is he helping Pat, but he's weeding through the wreckage of the Pentagon uh, doing his normal day-to-day business after a terrorist attack. And, and so he's probably um, was, I wouldn't say it's a chant was a challenge interview. He's a very gracious guy and, and a lovely human being. Um <clears throat> But yes. but it was an interesting uh, interview. And then, of course, Jim, I already talked about the PTSD piece. And I suppose the third one that that was more of a challenge was probably more bureaucratic was was Alex Silverstein, yeah. uh, who recovered Bob um, getting permission from the FBI to even sit down with him and then um, access to the FBI facilities in Jacksonville, Florida, where Alex currently works. But, you know, hearing him, he, you know, as a law enforcement guy, he doesn't get too choked up about much, but you could tell that um, what he had experienced uh, on and around 9-11 and in particular in recovering the remains of Bob and a couple other folks uh, that touched him very deeply. And he talks about, uh, sharing that story with his kids so they don't forget. I think that's that resonates with the mission that you all are talking about. Yeah. So having gone through the process of, of making this documentary, and, and this is a question for both of you, and I'll start with you, Pat. Um, ha- has this sparked any desire to either, A, continue the story or move into telling different stories because it what what started off as being a, a piece that would be meant for family um i mean clearly that wasn't the end game but it was definitely for family has moved on now to we're having this conversation we're screening the film in our museum and you know the goal is to is to get this story to as many people as possible is the goal for for both of you to continue with telling this story and or explore other stories, Pat? Um, You know, before I forget, I want to tell you that I remember when after 9-11 and then then I saw how people were reacting, I realized that Bob's loss was not only my loss, but it was the loss of our country as well. 
And now with this uh, documentary, the, the reception has been really very warm and, you know, people have been very um, welcoming with it. But I think also the Vietnam veterans have something they can relate to. And it's very important that we do something to also document something for them because they were never they didn't have a happy welcoming, you know. So, yes, and we are working on this. Uh, Steve did some more interviews this summer and um, he interviewed me a little bit more because there's a couple of things that I really wanted in the in this documentary. Um, but we were also asked to make it longer to possibly, in, you know, lengthen it to 75 to 90 minutes. Mm -hmm. And so Steve is working diligently on that right now. Um, I do want to share with you two things later um, about this documentary. If you want me to wait, I can wait. No, go ahead. Okay. Well, first of all, um, and, and Steve alluded to some of it initially a little while ago, um, Brent Diefenbach did not tell his family. Uh, his wife might have known about uh, what he actually had done by pulling Bob out of the airplane, but he did not share. He has adult children. He had, they were not aware of this. And so when the documentary, uh, when Steve shared the documentary with him, he sat his family down and showed it to them. And that was the first time the kids were even aware of it. Now, if you'll notice, uh, he downplays his part. He'll tell you, you know, he didn't know why he was compelled to do it. But he he just says when he told Bob, well, you have to you know, unstick your foot. When Bob said, I can't pull my foot down, he said, unstick it. Well, I started thinking about that. Uh, Bob had told me that that uh, Brent had bought a knife the day before the uh, airplane accident and that he had gone to the BX and picked up this knife and he told himself, why am I buying this? I guess I could use it in the jungle in case I get shot down. So he had it with him. And that's what he basically used to cut the fuse lid to where Bob's leg was trapped. There's no way Bob could pull out his leg because Bob's leg was so severely broken that he had, and his hands were all broken and his arm was also all crushed that he could have actually yanked that leg out. There's no way. So Brent actually cut him out, but he doesn't want to give himself that credit. He's a very humble God-fearing man. He really is very humble. And you can tell that by his interview, you know. Um, the other thing that I think is important to share is that Bob was alive 38 minutes after that airplane hit. Just like with that airplane where he was shot down from Vietnam. Well, the airplane hit the Pentagon and the columns in the west wing did not, in the west wedge, did not finally collapse until 38 minutes later. And he basically died from um, head blunt trauma to the head. That's what eventually killed him. So he was in that hell and that inferno for all of that time. And um, he, I knew this because I asked for an autopsy report and the autopsy report indicated when the mortician even confirmed this, that he had over 75% of carbon monoxide in his bloodstream. And he said he was actually ambulatory and he was breathing. So um, it's just, you know, it's so ironical because this is the way he was meant to go. Steve, for you now, and before I jump back to you, Pat, I just, again, I know we've said it at, at the top of this um, this uh, episode, um, but we appreciate so much you taking the time to share these stories. Um, Important. It's um, it's something that not a lot of us have had to go through 
you know, an ounce of what you've had to experience in your life. And the fact that you're willing to share um, says a lot about you. And it, it, it really means a lot. And I know that the people that will listen to this will appreciate your, your candid, you know, nature and, and, and talking about um, your former husband, Steve, this documentary now it's, it's, it has to be exciting for you that, that you're being asked to basically enhance what was already a fantastic uh, documentary. Um, the challenges for you in, in doing that, you know, you've got the, you've got the original and you don't want to do anything to mess up the original. That's a, that's a pretty big, that's a heavy lift for you. Well, yeah, yeah, yeah. I would use the word daunting because mm-hmm. uh, it's one thing to say, well, you know, we need to add content. It's another thing to make sure that that content doesn't detract from the story Mm -hmm. and, in fact, enhances the story. So, you know, Pat mentioned a couple other interviews we've done. Uh, We've been fortunate also, in addition to to the great support we're getting from from the SAC Museum, to have been working with the DIA historian, um, Greg Elder, who offered up um, some interviews that were done on uh, in preparation for the New York Memorial for 9-11. And so we've got four um, DIA employees who were in the Pentagon on the day of that weren't in the immediate vicinity. But then they also helped me get in touch with Admiral Wilson, who was the DIA representative that met with Pat, with uh, with Carl Glassbrenner uh, to let her know that Bob officially that Bob uh, had perished. And so, you know, those are some compelling kinds of things. And, and the, the challenge in the COVID year was how to do that. So Admiral Wilson, actually, we did uh, virtually. But then, um, you know, I, I, it, how do you add that kind of content to an already 44 and a half minute product? Um, the original cut of this was a little bit over an hour. And we cut it back to 44 and a half. And I think we had a better, a better program. Mm. Um, so we can't extend it without doing additional content. And I think um, it remains to be seen how well that's going to turn out. But we appreciate people thinking about it. And hopefully the extended version will give us an opportunity to reach different audiences in a, in a broader context, which, of course, is one of, one of our goals. And, and Pat, I know that was the discussion you and I had was we want to get Bob's and your family's story out uh, for you, Bob's story. But for me, it's the entire concept and, and all of the people that are involved in this are true Americans that uh, deserve some recognition for what they've gone through and what they've contributed. And, you know, the listeners, not only to this podcast, but the, the visitors that everyone that's involved with the museum, I, I know that there will be more than one that will listen to this story today and and, and hear that what what you've shared, and they're gonna their thought is gonna is going to go to, I would like to support this. I would like to in some way show support. And my question before we wrap up here today is, if somebody does want to be a part of helping you tell this story to as large an audience as possible, where would you direct them, Steve, to be able to support the 29 years of second chance at life uh, documentary? Well, I, first of all, um, I have a request. 
uh, if it's all right. Yeah, and, go that ahead. Is, and that is, you know, in November when we when we screened it at the museum uh, the first time, some folks came up to me. One one gentleman from actually that worked at SAC and wanted to uh, wanted to know if we'd be willing to come out and and show it to SAC employees. And I I screwed up because I didn't catch his name uh, <laughs> or get his contact information. And I'd love to be able to do that. And then. I know that the museum has, because we also had another guy that was on missions in linebacker that was telling me about his experience. And I'd love to be able to recontact with anybody that might've been involved with linebacker or in particular in the B-52 mission fly, you know, as a crew member or whatever that might've flown on some of those sorties um, because we might want to sit down and do an interview with them for part of this extended piece as well. Uh, Cause that, that, 1972 era Vietnam stuff. Um, I, I'd like to be able to exp- to blow that out a little bit further with real stories uh, of people that were in those crews to help amplify the kind of mission that Bob was on um, to help honor um, those folks. So that's that's part one. That's that's more internal. But in terms of outreach, if you're involved with any kind of a and you're hearing this and you're involved with any kind of a veterans organization or um, any organization that would like to have a screening, just let us know and, and they can do that. Um, if I can do an email address um, mm-hmm. at GP Visual Pro, all one word dot uh, at gmail.com gp visual pro at gmail.com just shoot me an email and and uh, let me know what you're interested in also we have a website uh 29 years movie.com mm-hmm. that um, folks can get more information and and that email address is uh, in there too for contact us off of that yeah and if you missed either of those you'll be able to find those in the description for this uh this episode of the podcast um, before we go, uh, again, on just on behalf of the entire museum, um, Pat, I want to thank you very much for your time and for sharing your story here today. Um, this is a, this is a fascinating, incredible documentary that, um, we're looking forward to screening again here thank at the you. museum, uh, Memorial day weekend. Um, and, uh, Steve, I'm, I'm glad that we, we made contact and, uh, we look forward to the expanded version uh, of the 29 years uh, documentary, the 29 years movie.com is where you can go to learn more. Correct. Right. All right. Yep. Very good. Well, I appreciate uh, both of you taking, uh, taking time to, uh, to visit with us here today. And uh, I'd like to, I'd like to think this won't be the, the, this won't be the last time that we visit to talk about this and that we'll get together again when the expanded version is wrapped up and, and ready to screen deal. I'm I'm with you. All right. Thank very you. Good. Thank very you. Much. Thank yeah. you. Appreciate you your time very much. That'll do it for this edition of the Strategic Air Command and Aerospace Museum podcast. Again, if you have not subscribed, we would encourage you to do so so that you're always getting the updates of all the amazing uh, guests that we have uh, in your inbox. You can find us on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook. We have a YouTube channel as well uh, to keep up on everything that we have going on. And uh, definitely visit our website, sacmuseum.org, coming up on Memorial Day weekend. 
uh, Memorial Day exactly, we will be uh, screening again 29 years of second chance at life. Many thanks to our guests, Deep Saunders, uh, Pat Hemel, and that will do it for us. We will talk to you again soon. Thank you. This has been the Strategic Air Command at Aerospace Museum podcast. Learn more about events, programs, and exhibits at the Strategic Air Command and Aerospace Museum at sacmuseum.org.